Good morning. Welcome to the teaching hour of Community Bible Chapel in this first Sunday in the month of May 2020. We're continuing our series on the book of Job. This is the second lesson, and we'll be covering chapters 3 through 37, which sounds like a mouthful, and it is. Uh, a fellow by the name of Langdon Gilkey uh, was interned in uh, China during World War II when the Japanese came down and invaded China. They took all the Westerners and they interned them in camps uh, to keep them out of harm's way or to keep them causing trouble. And as it turned out, Langdon Gilkey uh, was uh, incarcerated in a Presbyterian camp in a in a, a community called Shantung in China. And he, everyone had a job assignment uh, within uh, their uh, confines. And his was to find uh, sleeping arrangements for all of those who were interned at the camp. Now this was an old Presbyterian camp and it wasn't designed for the use it was being put to. And obviously that became a challenge to him. So in the book, uh, Langdon Gilkey descri describes uh, some of the things that happened. And the, the essence of the whole book is, uh, under pressure, people begin to reveal themselves in a different way. You begin to see people as they really are when they are under pressure, and especially for a length of time. So one of the stories that he tells is that uh, that he has uh, two identical rooms. And in one of those rooms, there are 11 men uh, given sleeping quarters. And in the other room, there are 13 men. Now that sounds like a real no brainer. All you have to do is take one man from the 13 man room and place him in the 11 man room and you have even Steven, or so it seems. But Gilkey goes on to describe the mental gyrations that the, uh, the people go through in that room to justify why they need to keep it an 11-man room and not take on an extra tenant. He also tells a story about uh, a, uh, a room, a two-bedroom accommodation that they had. And uh, they had one family with a number of kids that was hoping to have the room, but there was also a pastor who had only he and his wife, and the pastor was arguing strongly that he needed to have that study, because, that bedroom for a study because it was so important to his work and ministry. Well, the long and the short of it is, people do behave differently uh, in different environments and situations. And frankly, that's what we see in our text. We see in chapters 3 through 37 that now there is a prolonged agony, a prolonged suffering that Job is enduring. And while he comes out looking really good in the initial uh, two chapters of, of the book of Job, uh, some of his uh, less favorable qualities begin to emerge as we look further along in the book of Job. Now, I must confess to you that there is a way in which I would be tempted to just pass on and uh, move quickly beyond this. You think to yourself, what if we just went from the end of chapter two to chapter 
38 and, and got to the end of the whole story. Well, the reality is God didn't intend for us to study the book of Job that way. And so we really need to think about what it is that God is saying to us in these chapters. And why does he feel that it's worthy of this number of chapters, this amount of time for us to consider? So let's think about some of the things that we might miss. Number one, uh, it's a chapter three that the test for Job becomes even greater than it was. It becomes prolonged, and to add to it, not only is the timing of his suffering prolonged, but he, he gains three friends who uh, are more than eager to give him counsel, which in effect only adds to his agony and suffering. So the test is, is greater, and I'm sure that the angels above, as they were looking down, were looking with greater interest, in effect saying to themselves, what's he going to do now? Also, I think we miss the benefits and the blessings which God has in mind for Job and for us uh, in this period of extended suffering. God has a purpose for it, and I think we need to think about it, and we need to understand what God is doing. The other thing that this section does for us is it helps us to understand in a better way what the basis is for Job's righteousness. It, it, God says in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 to Satan, have you looked at and thought about my servant Job? And, and God declares him to be righteous. Uh, but we need to look a little more carefully at just what that means and how that righteousness came about. And uh, I think we see that in these chapters. Uh, we would not see the error of Job's accusers. Job's friends came with a certain frame of reference, and they came determined to fix Job by pointing out his sin. Something was wrong with the way they thought and the way they responded to Job, and we need to see that. There are lessons for us to learn from Job's friends. And to extend that, we need to learn some lessons about how to be a good counselors to others. How do we encourage people who are suffering? There is a book that is titled, When Helping Hurts, and I think that Job would say amen as he looks uh, at what's going on in his life, his friends are not helping him uh, to do what is godly and righteous. One other thing that I'm really grateful to Ray Stedman uh, for pointing out, and I frankly had forgotten it and overlooked it. When we come to the book of Job, we are no longer in the historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, books like Deuteronomy or Joshua or Judges. We're not there. Instead, we have come to the first of the poetic books in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and so Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those poetic books begin uh, with the book of Job. And the thing that Ray Stedman says that I think is very interesting is, it's not just poetry, it's beautiful poetry. This is really exceedingly uh, wonderfully done poetry. And, and, and so it's very much in that regard, like what we find in Psalm 73. There you have uh, Asaph uh, in agony over certain things, but the interesting thing is 
the way that psalm was put together, it's done beautifully in a very structured way. So here's the way I'd like to approach this message. First of all, I want to do an overview of the passage, of the chapters that we're dealing with, as many as there are. And I want to focus on Job's uh, response uh, to what is going on, and I want to look at Job's friends and their counsel for him. Then we want to look at this very interesting fellow named Elihu, who is the fourth member of the counseling team who was not invited. We don't know how he gets there. Uh, but he has six chapters of critique for both Job and for Job's friends. And then we want to talk about lessons to learn, and I've suggested that I want to focus on some things that may relate especially to the COVID-19 pandemic that we're now experiencing. So let's look at our, uh, the overall view of our text. In chapters one and two, uh, we've seen the story of Job and the heavenly scene where God is asking Satan what he thinks. And, you know, in chapter one, he says, yeah, Job serves you because you give him benefits and goodies. And so for those perks, uh, Job is happy to serve you because of the blessings that he gets out of it. And so he says, but take those away and you will discover that Job will curse you and, and die. And so God allows him to do that, but says you cannot touch his body, just uh, his, in effect, possessions, including his family. And then in chapter two, what we see is Job passes that test. And so God, again, has the conversation with Satan. And Satan now says, well, yeah, that's right. But take away his physical health, and this man will not serve you. He will curse you and die. And so God allows that to happen. Job still remains faithful, but the suffering endures, and that gets us to chapter three. In chapter three, Job says he wants to die. The interesting thing about that is that when God allowed Satan the, the ability to bring about physical harm, physical pain to Job, he wouldn't let him take his life. And frankly, I think Job was saying to himself, if he knew, I wish he would have. It would have made my, my life easier to end it and to die. But Job wants to end his life because it will end his suffering. And that becomes the occasion where once Job has spoken, and they think spoken wrong, wrongly, his friends enter the picture in chapter 4, and they... Uh, take Job on in really three cycles, and it's almost like a tag team in one sense. One man speaks, and Job responds, and the other one comes along, and you have three men in each of these three cycles, uh, save the last one, which is uh, shortened a bit. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are the three men. Interestingly, uh, when you look at some of the statistics on this, uh, I, just to keep track, I, I kept track of the men and the number of chapters that were devoted to their participation. In cycle one, the score is seven to four uh, in, in, in that the, the opponents of uh, Job uh, are outnumbered by Job chapter-wise, four chapters. 
of, of uh, their speaking and uh, seven chapters for Job. In cycle two, you have four chapters for Job, uh, for, for uh, his opponents, and three for Job. And in the third cycle, you have eight. Eight for Job, two for his friends. And I find that really, really interesting. But we'll look at that again in a moment. And then in chapter 32, this man, Elihu, uh, enters the scene, and we have six chapters of his rebuke, both of Job and of his three friends. Then chapter 38 comes along, and, it, and uh, you have God now, who has been questioned, his, his leadership, his administration has been questioned by Job, and now God comes along and says to Job, I have some questions for you. And, you know, Job will end up saying in the end, well, shut my mouth. But then in chapter 42, we see Job repenting and him being restored. But we're going to talk about just this section, which involves Job and his three friends, plus Elihu for those six chapters, and see how this goes. So I call this the great debate. I want to begin by saying, I know that Job's friends are called friends, but that's not really perhaps the most accurate term. And I think we could look, say, as we look at this, are these guys really friends or are they not? That word for friend occurs 183 times in the Old Testament. And when you look, for instance, uh, if you've got a concordance program and you can see how that word is translated, 91 times, about 50% of the time it's used, it's translated neighbor in the King James Version. And 49 times, it's translated friend. So twice as often it's called neighbor than it is called friend. And frankly, I'm not sure that these guys are really intimate friends at all. <laughs> Certainly not in terms of their contribution. They are, they're not great friends to Job at all. But let's talk about the debate that comes along and, and uh, see uh, how Job uh, comes through this whole experience. Job speaks first, chapter three. He wants to die, and this is perceived as an invitation by his three friends to enter in. By the way, we don't really know how long Job suffered before uh, these men came along. I'm guessing it was some time. And the text tells us they basically met somewhere and came together to see Job. My guess is that they had sort of strategized about how they would approach the, the situation. But here is Job, whose suffering we know, I think from chapter 7, his suffering was months long. It was not a short-term event. And obviously, as that suffering wore thin, uh, then Job begins to become uh, more of a complainer than he has been. The beauty of this is because the arguments of both Job and his three friends are consistent throughout this entire three-cycle process. We don't have to look in detail at every particular uh, statement that is made because we can find samplings of statements, and that's going to tell us how things went. 
So let's think about the accusations that are made against Job. You start with Eliphaz. Eliphaz probably is the older of the group, and that, of course, gives him a, a seniority status. And so he comes along. Interestingly, in chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, uh, Eliphaz actually claims that his insight came to him from God by means of a vision. Now, that's very interesting. Uh, is he, how does he perceive that? Is he not telling the truth? Does he misunderstand? What is it that gives him, as it were, the right to claim divine revelation in terms of Job's uh, status? By the way, we hear people say that today to people, other people. The Lord told me to tell you, um, and it has that same feel. And I think we need to be careful about uh, who, to whom we give credit for our insight. But he basically says, initially, he starts out gently, and then he gets tougher as time goes along. So he starts out basically saying, well, you did some good things, but somehow you must have messed up. That is, you must have sinned. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 8. He says, for example, in verse 3, you encouraged many people, you strengthened those who were weak, you supported those who were following, uh, you encouraged those with shaky knees. You were a help to people in need. But now, he says in verse 5, when trouble strikes, you lose heart. You're terrified when it touches you. In verse 7, he says, stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? In other words, Job, take a look at your life. It's a mess. Obviously, God is disciplining you, and if that's the case, then you must have done something wrong. Well, Zophar, his uh, companion, was uh, basically taking the same tack. And so here's what he says in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. If only you would prepare your heart and lift up your hands to him in prayer. Get rid of your sins and leave all iniquity behind you. Then your face will brighten with innocence. You will be strong and flee, be free of fear. So Zophar is saying as well, you're a sinner. Repent and things will get better. As the story goes on, the accusations get meaner. Uh, for example, listen to Bildad. He basically says to Job, your children died because they sinned. He says in chapter 8, verse 4, your children must have sinned against him, so their punishment was well-deserved. All of a sudden, you crossed the line, and now the very thing that Job feared when he made sacrifices and burnt offerings for his children, now these guys are saying it, it, it didn't work. Your kids were sinners, and God took them out because of their sin. And then when you look at Eliphaz, he sort of ramps up his accusations, where when he started, he said, you've done all these good things. And now he basically says, because God is punishing you, you have to have done these things. So he says, no, it's because of your wickedness. There is no limit to your sins. For example, you must have lent money to your friend and demanded clothing as security. Yes, you stripped him to the bone. You must have refused water for the thirsty and food for the hungry. You probably think the lion belongs to the powerful and only the privileged have the right to it. 
You must have sent widows away empty-handed and crushed the hopes of orphans. So in other words, he's saying, you really have done some horrible things. You have to have done something terrible like this for God to bring about the discipline which he has brought into your life. But in spite of all that, Job consistently stands firm against the accusations. Uh, he says, but he knows where I'm going, and when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold. For I have stayed on God's paths, I have followed his ways and not turned aside. I have not departed from his commands, but I have treasured his words more than daily food. Job chapter 23, verses 10 through 12. But he also, Job, as well as maintaining his innocence, Job also questions God and what God is doing in a way that certainly is not appropriate. So here's what we read in chapter 30, verses 18 through 22. Uh, it says, with a strong hand, God grabs my shirt. He grips me by the collar of my coat. He has thrown me into the mud. I'm nothing more than dust and ashes. I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer stand before you, but you don't even look. You have become cruel toward me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm. That's not really uh, the, the devotion that you would expect from a man who loves and fears God. And some of his words really betray an arrogance. Uh, and, and it's almost as though Job has God in the defendant's chair and he's the prosecutor. So in Job 31, we read, if only someone would listen to me, look, I will sign my name to my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. I would wear it like a crown, for I would tell him exactly what I've done I would come before him like a prince. Well, that's not Job's finest moment. Now he, he is not only complaining, he is criticizing what God is doing and doing so with an arrogance that is not befitting a saint. All right, that really takes us, I think, in essence, granted we have to slip through those texts rather quickly, but it takes us through those chapters of interchange, almost like a ping pong, or a tennis match where you're going back and forth from one of Job's accusers to Job, and, and uh, that's the way it has ended. Now Elihu enters at chapter 32, and it's interesting because uh, people really differ. Bible students differ as to how to take this guy. Where did he come from? You know, here he is not only uh, criticizing Job, but taking on his three friends, and, and so you're saying, where does this come from? And is he right? What do we take from all of this? So let's, let's take uh, into account some reasons why I believe that Elihu needs to be taken seriously. One thing I notice is he does not take sides. He doesn't stand with Job as opposed to his three friends. He doesn't stand with his three friends as they oppose Job. He rebukes both Job and his friends. There seems, I guess, to be an impartiality, a neutral a neutrality there on his part. The other thing that's interesting is his rebuke is based upon what these men have said. Now, when you look at Job's friends, 
they're assuming he has done certain terrible things for which they have no proof at all. In, in Elihu's case, he simply takes their words and says, this is what you said, and this is what I'm going to criticize about what you said. Now, think about this. Even though Elihu challenged Job to counter him, to come back, to defend himself, Job never debates Elihu. He never says to Elihu, that's not right. And in fact, the three don't debate with him either. He rebukes them, but they do not try to rebuke him or to defend themselves. Next, God doesn't rebuke him. Uh, though God rebukes all three and Job, uh, certainly to some degree, uh, God says to Job regarding his three friends, they have not spoken right about me. Elihu has spoken just before God speaks, three chapters, six chapters worth, and yet God doesn't say anything to imply that Elihu is wrong in what he said. The other thing that you got to say is he gets six chapters. Why would the author give Elihu six chapters if he didn't have something to say? And, and uh, I think the last point for me is his rebuke really sounds valid. When you listen to what he says, you say to yourself, you know, I don't think he's too far off the mark. And so here's what we read. It says that Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, one of the clan of Ram, became angry. He was angry because Job refused to admit that he had sinned and that God was right in punishing him. And he was also angry with Job's three friends, for they made God appear to be wrong by their inability to answer Job's arguments. That's Job 32, verses 2 and 3. So here's what he says uh, a little bit later in chapter 33. You have spoken in my hearing, and I've heard your very words. You said, I am pure. I am without sin. I am innocent. I have no guilt. God is picking a quarrel with me, and he considers me his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches my every move. But you are wrong, and I will show you why. For God is greater than any human being. So why are you bringing a charge against God? Why say he does not respond to people's complaints? In other words, why are you criticizing God and, and, and defending yourself? So it seems like Job was more interested in being right, but his friends had failed to make their case. And I think that's what Elihu is saying. There's one more observation about Elihu. And to me, it seems to me that he is looking ahead in some way that prefigures Christ. Listen to these words from Elihu, and this comes to us in Job 33, verses 23 through 30. But if an angel from heaven appears, a special messenger to intercede for a person and declare that he is upright, he will be gracious and say, rescue him from the grave, for I have found a ransom for his life. Then his body will become as healthy as a child's, firm and youthful again. When he prays to God, he will be accepted, and God will receive him with joy and restore him to good standing. He will declare to his friends, I sinned and twisted the truth, 
but it was not worth it. God rescued me from the grave, but now my life is filled with light. Yes, God does these things again and again for people. He rescues them from the grave so they may enjoy the light of life. Wow, that sounds to me like uh, Elihu is saying some angelic uh, heavenly being is going to come and make intercession for Job, and God is going to respond positively to that and, and reverse these things that have come along, and Job is once again going to be restored, restored to joyful fellowship. That is really a fascinating statement on the part of Elihu, so far as I'm concerned. So think about this. As I was looking back on these chapters, I think you could say this. Job did not abandon God in the midst of his suffering, but God did not abandon Job in the midst of his weakness and complaining either. So let's think about a few things uh, in conclusion as to how this relates to us. And I've suggested that I want to focus particularly on uh, the COVID-19 virus and, and the pandemic that we're going through as though there may be some direct applications. So I think, first of all, we see this uh, when we're thinking about the subject of sanctification. Righteous people are not perfect people. Not perfect in the sense of without sin, without flaws, uh, righteous people still are problems. Those of you who know me and know my teaching, I, I've used the expression, the Old Testament saints were jerks. Well, the reality is Job is being kind of a jerk here. He's not uh, living up to what he could in terms of his faith and his walk with God. So while Job is declared a righteous man, he is not declared to be a perfect man. And God reveals to us through this extended suffering uh, that Job has weaknesses and flaws too. That ought to be an encouragement to us. If we think that salvation means sinless perfection, then we haven't lived very long. We haven't, we haven't had a lot of life and we haven't read a lot of scripture because Job uh, was not perfect. And that I think is, is obvious. But let's talk about extended suffering for a moment. My, my sense, and again, I am no prophet, and I don't want to, to come across in that way, but my sense is that the COVID-19 virus pandemic through which we're now going is going to prove over time to be something like 9-11 in the sense that the implications and the consequences and the difficulties are going to extend long term. I know that our, our political figures and other people want to talk happy thoughts, uh, uh, talk of, of, of quick restoration and prosperity, perhaps, but I don't see that coming. I see the aftermath of this uh, as having huge financial uh, uh, difficulties for many people for a long period of time. And so, just as Job is going through uh, this extended period of suffering and difficulty, I think we may be going through a similar experience, and we may find as time passes on that we can identify with Job a lot more 
than we have. So what does extended suffering do? Well, one, it exposes our sins. I think that's what Peter's talking about when he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, that we're being purified uh, like gold. As the heat is put to us, the slag, the impurities boil to the surface, and we have to deal with them. I think that's true with Job. I think it will be true for us. I think we will see things that we may not have seen before. In the book of Deuteronomy, God said to the Israelites that there are going to be delicate men and delicate women who under the duress of their difficulties will not be delicate at all. And, and I think there is that dilemma that may face us. It will expose our sins and we'll have to deal with it. But the other thing is, I think we need to understand that extended suffering is a part of the sanctification process. Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And Romans chapter 5 talks about that. And the interesting thing is that when Paul talks about our suffering and, and our endurance, what he says is, when we experience that difficulty and we survive it, we actually come through it, and we see that God's hand has been faithful, it strengthens our faith. It makes us go through life and say, we can handle this because God has given us the grace and the means to do so. So I think you see over and over that, that suffering, especially extended suffering, may be a part of the process by which God uh, sanctifies us. I think it's also part of God's instruction to us. God actually works with us. Now, I notice with Job's friends that they really don't seem to learn anything in the process. And what's really interesting about that third cycle is that what you have is Eliphaz comes across with his criticism, Job responds, and, and then you have Bildad, and, and uh, he has six verses, and then he just, it just fizzles out, it peters out, it, 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 his arguments, he, he can't say the thing over and over again, and so he just stops, and, and so far he doesn't say anything at all. So these guys run out of gas, so to speak, in their opposition. But as I watch Job, he actually seems to get stronger. His hope seems to be greater and brighter uh, than it was uh, earlier on. And so you really see him uh, coming along, I think, and growing because God is working through his, his faith. We learn obedience through suffering. I remember a professor of mine used to say, if I give my, the, the amount would change, by the way, if I give my child a dollar and tell them to go buy an ice cream cone, that's really not a test of obedience. If we go to the doctor and they have to have a shot, then that becomes a, a test of obedience. We find that when we are in the midst of suffering, our obedience has to be an act of faith. It is something that we learn through adversity and, and we have to exercise faith. And incidentally, that is true of our Lord Jesus as well. Our Lord Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. Listen to these verses in Hebrews. It says, for it was fitting for him for whom and through whom 
all things exist in bringing many sons to glory to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. And finally, although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Even our Lord Jesus went through suffering to learn obedience. And obviously, we see that especially in the Garden of Eden, when our Lord looks forward to the cross, uh, but he chooses to be obedient to the Father. So I believe Job really seems to have grown in his faith as time went on. And so you see these kinds of statements. Can the dead live again? If so, this would give me hope through all my years of struggle, and I would eagerly await the release of death. You would call and I would answer, and you would learn for me your handiwork. Then you would guard my steps instead of watching for my sins. My sins would be sealed in a pouch and you would cover my guilt. And then that great well-known statement in Job chapter 19. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. After my body has uh, decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. I think another thing that we need to see in this whole process of Job's uh, extended suffering is that there is no direct cause, no direct relationship between our performance and God's blessings. Uh, I think that, that Job's opponents, uh, his critics, were basically saying, uh, they were using a biblical expression, but what a man sows, he reaps. And so in their minds, they're saying this, when you do good, God blesses. When you do evil, God punishes. And so they, they saw that as a sort of rule of the day. And they said to themselves, when Job prospers, he's, it's because he's been good. When Job suffers, it's because he sinned. And that's why they persisted at trying to get Job to repent and to be restored to God's blessing. But the truth is, it doesn't work that way. You look, for example, at Psalm 73, uh, and Asaph is complaining. And he says to God, wait a minute, God, wait a minute, something's not going right here. You promised to do good to Israel. So how come these pagans are enjoying prosperity and I'm not? How come I'm suffering and they're prospering? Something's wrong with the system. Well, in that case, I think a good part of the answer was that uh, Asaph did not understand the definition of good. In that text, God says, the nearness of God is your good. And so if suffering brings you nearer to God, that suffering is for your good. It isn't just material prosperity. And incidentally, in that text, it's very clear that those who prospered actually were arrogant and rebellious against God and said, God doesn't know, God doesn't care. So there is no direct relationship. What that means is you can look around in life and you can see bad people 
uh, living the life of ease, and you can see good people suffering uh, unjustly, so it would seem. There is not a direct relationship. And what we're really saying is this, performance is not the basis for reward or punishment in the way that we see God's blessing or suffering that he's brought into our life. Performance is not the key. I'll go one step further. Performance is not the basis for righteousness. When you think about Job and his friends, it would be easy to come away and say, well, yeah, Joseph was, uh, Job was declared to be righteous before God, and he was declared to be righteous by God because he feared God and he turned away from evil. That's not the case. I think when you look at this, what you see is uh, God blesses Job and calls him righteous in spite of whatever flaws he has, and only because his faith and trust is in God himself. So it's God who gives blessings. It is God who declares righteous. So why is Job a righteous man? Because God said he was. And even after Job begins to flounder uh, a bit in his experience, God is still faithful to Job because of who God is, not because of, of Job's performance. I think in the days that come, what we're going to see is some businesses and some individuals will actually thrive because of the pandemic. And I think we're also going to see that some uh, very fine and lovely people are going to suffer greatly, maybe lose their businesses, lose their livelihood, uh, and yet not because of wickedness or ungodliness. We need to be very careful that we are not Job's friends and that we don't somehow say, well, the reason why we're blessed and the reason why you're blessed is because of your performance. I think the United States of America, and I'm thinking particularly of those of us now in North Dallas, I'm thinking that what's happening is that we've been experiencing prosperity and the good life, if you would. Uh, and we have begun to take credit for that as though somehow that's something we merit. And maybe we say it's our democratic way of government. Maybe we say it's the Puritan work ethic. Whatever it is, somehow it begins to creep into our minds that we have the good life because we're good people. Well, there are many people in this world who are fine, lovely Christians who are living a life far below what we would call the good life. Let's be very careful. And, and as I was thinking about this, I said to myself, I wonder whether I'm even thinking about my brothers and sisters in various parts of the world where their life is far from good. What am I doing to help them? Uh, what I dare not do is be like Job's friend and say they're just suffering because somewhere they've messed up. So let's you and I, as we face this pandemic, as we face the difficulties which I think are coming and are gonna be long-term, when we face the fact that some people are gonna do really well and other people are not, let us be careful not to fall into the trap of saying your performance is the basis for blessing or suffering. It is not. And remember, it is our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
who suffered so that we might be declared righteous and God can call us righteous. If you're an unbeliever and you're listening to me and you're hearing these words, don't try harder. Trust God and believe in him. Trust in him because of who he is, not because of what he gives. Father, thank you for Job. Thank you for the lessons that we need to learn from him. Help us in these difficult days, which I believe are ahead of us. Help us to learn from Job and help us to be faithful followers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.